Well, you know, from the many things that I could possibly preach about, I decided to edify you today and to encourage you by speaking about how to survive a storm. And I do that because even though I don't know your names, I know that you're either in a storm, you've come out of one, or you're about to go into one because every one of us has storms. And you know, the storm may be a relational storm in your marriage. The storm may be a health issue. Maybe some of you are struggling with terminal cancer and some of you are struggling with financial issues and storms come to us in many different packages and many different sizes. And sometimes the strength of the storm is this way or that way. I was telling the folks that maybe you're having a storm in your marriage and because I mentioned it this morning to the other group, I have to tell you also what marriage is. Many people don't know. In Chicago, there was a man who was married by a judge, and now he wished he'd asked for a jury, but <laughs> marriage is two people solving problems together that they'd have never had if only they'd stayed single. <laughs> so that's what marriage is. But no matter what storm you're going through, the passage of Scripture is actually found in the 14th chapter, the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew, and I know that many of you have, your, have it on your cell phones. I have the Bible on my cell phone too, but if I might humbly say as you look up here, this actually is a Bible. Thank God for a Bible. Do we have a witness out there? You know, I told the folks this morning that I looked it up and in Michigan it's still legal to say amen in church. Amen, all right. 14th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus has just done a miracle. He's fed 5,000 people. They want to make him a king. And I'm picking it up in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Is there somebody here today who says, that's me? The wind is against me. And it may be um, wind. You know, one of the things that Rebecca and I have discovered as we've gone along is that so often the storms come one right after another. One storm brings another storm, and... You may be here today and say that nothing seems to have worked out. Constantly the wind is against me. If that's you, you're at the right place today because I believe you're going to get encouragement from this marvelous story, this miracle that Jesus performed in Galilee. Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you seven lessons that will help you survive the storm. I intend that you would take notes and the, the note, the... Um, the lessons are going to be with you or for you on the screen. In this fallen world, can it get any better than that? The lessons are going to be on the screen. I want you to write them down. I want you to take and laminate them and put them on your fridge because this much I know, the time will come when you will need these lessons. Seven lessons on how to survive a storm. Let's uh, just begin with lesson number one, and that is that storms often come to us within the will of God. 
they often come in obedience to Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Were the disciples in the will of God? The answer is, of course they were in the will of God. Wouldn't you like it if Jesus were to step out of heaven and tell you expressly, get into this boat and go to the other side? Wouldn't you like to have that kind of direction? But while they were obeying Christ, one of the greatest storms that they ever encountered, they encountered there on Galilee. Just because we're obedient to Jesus doesn't mean that we are exempt from storms. It doesn't mean that our life is like a path, you know, with beautiful flowers on each side and everything is filled with health and wealth. It doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes doing God's will means that you will encounter storms. The holiest path in life is not often the smoothest path. Sometimes the holiest path is a path that is filled with trouble and storms and unexpected emergencies, and that is God's holy path. Let me tell you, God is not in heaven trying to figure out how our lives are going to always go with such beauty and beautiful weather and beautiful circumstances. God is interested in our faith, even in the midst of storms. To put it very clearly, Jesus created this storm for the disciples. The disciples were in this storm by divine appointment in the will of God. So just because you're having trouble today doesn't mean that you're out of God's will. You may be doing God's will and find that you're encountering a storm. Well, let's go on to number two. Storms should remind us of God's promises. Storms should remind us of God's promises. Now, you say, oh, where is that in the text? When Pastor Samra preaches, you should always say, Pastor, where is that in the text? And I know that he preaches the text, so you can, you can ask him that. But um, here it says expressly, that Jesus went up to the mountain, but before he did that, he said to the disciples, get into this boat and go to the other side. In other words, if the creator of the winds and the oceans tells you to go to the other side, you will go to the other side. Thank you over there. I, I hear you. You see, here's the thing that we must recognize that if the disciples had listened carefully to Jesus, they could have enjoyed that storm. There was no way that they were going to go under as long as Jesus said, go to the other side, because there was no chance that they would drown, because on that boat was John, and he had not yet written his book of John and the epistles of John. Peter, uh, okay, yeah, I hear you. Uh, Peter had not yet written uh, First and Second Peter. In other words, if you're to be hung, you'll never drown. <laughs> that, that I think. <laughs> I wondered if you all would get that. Now, what do we need to do when we are encountering storms? We hang onto the promises of God. I was born in Canada 
on a farm five miles from a town of 75 people. But we used to go to a little church, and in it we used to sing every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Actually, that's not true. There are some promises that God made to Abraham that don't apply to me. But you look at all of the promises of the New Testament, so many of them. Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, which means, of course, poverty or martyrdom. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so we hang on to the promises of God. And maybe at the end of this message, I'll give you an idea as to how that can be done. We hang on to the promises. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Never, 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 never. I think Pastor Samra is an expert in Greek, and it's true, isn't it? That five times in that verse, God says, never. I will no not leave you. I will no not forsake you. We hang on to the promises of God. And the Bible says in 2 Peter that there are given unto us great and precious promises that by these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, through evil desire. The promises of God. He'll take you all the way to the other side of the lake. Well, let's hurry on to number three. And I always say that number three may be the most important. Even when we cannot see God, God sees us. Even when we cannot see God, God sees us. Now, Rebecca and I were in Israel in March, and you know, they call the hills around Galilee mountains, as it is here in the Bible. But um, were the disciples able to see Jesus in the darkness on some hill far away? Of course not. But even though they couldn't see Jesus, Jesus could see them. He knew the longitude and the latitude of their little boat. He knew the depth of the water. He knew the strength of every board. He knew every single detail as they were being tossed along the sea. And uh, Jesus sees us even when we don't see him. For 20 years, I played tennis with a man by the name of Mark. He and I were great friends. And uh, by the way, I mentioned it this morning that tennis players often make very bad husbands because to a tennis player, love means nothing. All right. <laughs> So we played tennis for 20 years, and then he was told he had terminal cancer. And I remember him telling me that one evening, one night, he was filled with such pain. He left the bedroom quietly so he wouldn't wake his wife, and he said he sat on the couch, and he said, you know, all faith just drained from my soul. There are times of darkness like that. There are times that are so dark that you do not see God. But in times like that, let me remind you that even though we cannot see God, when push comes to shove, it is more important that God see us than that we can see him. And he is there watching us and sees us. And by the way, if you're struggling with depression in that kind of darkness, will you remember that feelings are not facts? Our feelings deceive us. If you're a believer, God is with you to the very end. 
So let's remember that even when we cannot see God, God sees us. I know where you are, the Lord says to the church in Revelation. I know where you are. You're, you're where Satan's seat is. I'm thinking, for example, of the church in Smyrna, and there are other examples. And God, by the way, how well does God know you and see you? You know, Jesus made the statement, he says, a sparrow can't fall to the ground without your father seeing it. And then he says this, the very hair of your head is numbered. Now, even since I've been up here, I notice that there are some of you who could number your own uh, number of hair. And, uh, you know, when we wash our hair, we don't count and say, how many did I lose? Although there was one man who used to do that. Because it's the most trivial thing. And Jesus said, even in the most trivial things that do not concern you, I know and I care. Wow. Well, let's go on to number four, and that is that Jesus comes to us at the right time. He comes to us at the right time. Now, your Bibles are open, and uh, I think it's about verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately... Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He comes to us at the right time. He comes at four o'clock in the morning when they are the most weary. And by the way, Galilee isn't that far across, you know. They maybe had rowed by this time four miles after hours of being on the sea and they were fishermen. And uh, Jesus comes to them when they were the most weary, when they were the most desperate, when perhaps they were most likely to give up, he comes to them in their point of desperation. God loves desperate people. And by the way, it is only desperate people who really pray. And the church in America today is in great, huge need, but oftentimes we still do not pray. We still do not call on God. But God comes to us. In our point of desperation, when the night is the darkest and when life is most weary. Rebecca and I know a woman who made her living basically in uh, being immoral. And she said she used to pray to God, God, get me out of this lifestyle. But he didn't. Until one time she was so desperate, she got on her knees and said, God, either get me out of here or kill me, but do one or the other. And she meant it. And that was the day that she walked free. God loves desperate people. He comes at the right time. I'm thinking, for example, of Abraham. He's willing to sacrifice Isaac. The knife is gleaming in the morning sun. And just as he is willing and ready to plunge that knife, God comes at exactly the right time. And there's a ram caught in the thicket to be offered just in time. We could say that he's the just-in-time God. So that's lesson number four. Lesson number five, our fears might be Jesus in disguise, not in disguise, like uh, you fly the friendly skies, fly disguise. No, uh, disguise camouflage. Jesus comes to them walking on the sea, and they cry out, 
it is a ghost. And they don't realize that that which they fear is Jesus coming toward them. And you and I must recognize the fact that Jesus often comes to us and we mistake him. That is to say, we look at the trouble, we look at the heartache, and we forget that it is Jesus coming to us. If I might refer to my friend Mark again, about two weeks before he died, I said, Mark, have you ever thanked God for your cancer? He said, oh yes, I thank him every day. He said, heaven used to be very theoretical to me, now it's very real. But I can tell you this, when Mark was told he had terminal cancer, he was not thanking God. He went through times when we were still able to play, and after we would play, we'd sit down and cry together. He talked about the fear, uh, anger, the unanswered questions. You see, there comes a time when once we bow to God's will and we see Jesus in our suffering, that changes our attitude. You know, it was uh, Elizabeth Elias who said, in acceptance, there is peace. So we don't see Jesus in the storm until we recognize that he's there. A number of years ago, I read an article about a couple who had a special needs child. This child was born to them, basically ruined their life. You know, they wanted to travel, and now God gives them a baby that needs attention 24-7. And so they go through all the questions, why us? What did we do? Somewhat embarrassed, our baby is not like other people's babies. They went through all that and with their anger and their unanswered questions. But now this article was written 13 years later, and, and the wife who wrote it, the mother, said how wonderful it was that in this baby, finally, they saw Jesus coming to them. It revealed their sin, their selfishness. They learned things about love. But when he comes to you, it doesn't look like Jesus. It looks like nothing but a terrible storm. But in that storm, there is Jesus. In fact, let, it, let me put it to you very clearly that the wind that brought them the waves is the same wind that brought them Jesus. And if you're going through a storm today and all that you see is the devil, the devil may indeed be involved. We have to recognize the recognition and the reality of demonic warfare. But at the same time, even there... If we're like Job, we can look beyond the devil, and looking beyond the devil and what he does, we can see God. It may be Jesus drawing near. Well, that's number five already. Number six is simply this, that the water that threatens to be over your head is under the feet of Christ. The water that threatens to be over your head is under his feet. Jesus walks across Galilee as if it is a marble floor. He walks above the waves with a sense of confidence, a sense of faith, a sense of complete, total authority. And today I want you to visualize your storm. And by the way, I want you to think about your storm because at the end of this message, we're going to give our storms to God. I want to warn you, that's coming because I want you to leave a lot lighter than you came in. 
And uh, when we give our storms to God, what a difference that makes. But here is Jesus walking. What is it that the disciples feared? Well, of course they feared drowning, but Jesus walks above the waves. I want you to think for a moment of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says that we should be entering into all that Jesus is above every principality and every power and every name that is named, both in this world and in the world to come. And God has put all things under his feet. Your struggle the divorce that you are going through, the agony that you are going through, ultimately I want you to see today is under the feet of a sovereign Christ. I was telling the friends this morning when I preached this message that I quoted Savonarola. I've not quoted him in years and years, but it came to mind that Savonarola was preaching the gospel there in Florence, Italy, and then the Pope heard about it, and there was a trial. It's a fantastically interesting story, but he was burned. And today, when you go there, they have a little plaque on the floor uh, that nobody knows what it's there for, but that's approximately where the burning took place. But I'll never forget what Savonarola says. He who believes that Christ rules above need not fear what happens below. Today I want you to see the sovereign Christ walking above your trial, walking above your waves with a sense of complete, total authority. Jesus, the water that threatens to be over our head, is under the feet of a sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're hurrying this morning. I'm actually, I think, at lesson number seven. Have I, have I covered them all? You know, I was telling the folks that um, seven out of six people have trouble with math, so I'm just making sure here that it's all in order. Number seven, our ability to walk, our ability to walk depends on the focus of our eyes. Your Bibles are open, I'm sure. It says in verse um, 28, I think it's verse 28, yes. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... If you're in the habit of underlining your Bibles, you ought to underline that phrase because that's our challenge, isn't it? He saw the wind. And you and I are given to seeing the wind. And at that point, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, save me. I love that, Pastor, because... You and I sometimes have prayed long prayers, haven't you? I've prayed long prayers. You've probably prayed long prayers. But if you're going under, you don't have much time for a long prayer, do you? <laughs> Three words, Lord, save me. And immediately, by the way, do you notice that he is the immediate Jesus? Chapter um, of course, 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him saying, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? 
Let me ask you this question. What was Peter's biggest problem? Was it the depth of the water? Was it the height of the waves? Was it the speed of the wind? Was that the big issue? Not not in the presence of Christ who created the wind and the oceans. Peter's biggest problem was not, because to Jesus it didn't matter whether the wind was 20 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour, or if the water was 20 feet deep or 100 feet deep. To Jesus, those things don't matter. His biggest problem was faith and faith alone. Now, sometimes pastors, and I've done this, perhaps Pastor Samra has, we give Peter a hard time. We say, you know, if Peter had just kept his eyes on Jesus, he could have walked across the whole lake. You know, if you had had a cell phone there, and everybody has a cell phone taking pictures, and you had taken a picture, you'd have seen two people walk on the water for a time. And so we say, you know, if he'd only kept his eyes on Jesus, he'd have gotten across the whole lake. I know. But give him credit for getting out of the boat. There are so many people who have never taken any reasonable risk for Jesus. They stay in the boat because they play it safe. And so they never get out of the boat. So let's thank God that Peter was willing to get out of the boat because it is important to say a wet Peter is better than a dry Thomas. (laughs) So thank God for the Peters who are willing to get out of the boat. How long do you think it took before Peter began to sink? Oh, a couple of seconds maybe. Took his eyes off Jesus and started to go down. How long does it take for you to sin after you've been in church? Well, maybe on the way home you have an argument. It doesn't take very long for us to begin to fall. But Jesus immediately reaches out and says to him, you know, Jesus grasps him and then says the words, Oh, you of little faith. Always, what we always need is a better understanding of the sovereignty of Christ over our storms. By the way, you know, I preached on this before and it's only recently I realized that the Bible says that Jesus, when they got into the boat, that means Jesus entered into their boat and isn't it wonderful that he's with us on the boat all the way to the other side of the shore. Jesus is with us. And, um, you know, Jesus could have stayed on the shore and said, peace be still. And um, the storm would have stopped. But he doesn't stay on the shore. He comes to us in our storms and says, I'm here with you when the wind is blowing, when the waves are high. When it seems as if you are filled with fear, I come to you. And there are some people who will never, never understand what it is like to trust Jesus as their captain until their little boat is dashed against some rocks along the shore. It's amazing what God has to put some people through in order to realize that they need a savior. And you may be here today and you're filled with guilt and wonder and emptiness. And I recommend to you Jesus who said to Peter, come 
And today the invitation is for you also to come to Christ, the only one qualified to take you all the way to the other side of the lake. Thank you. I'll take that one too. Now, Tony Evans is a great preacher. You've heard him preach, I'm sure. And uh, he told a story which I confirmed with him personally. He and his wife Lois were on a ship and uh, they were on a cruise. And over the intercom, the captain said, we're entering into a storm, you know, buckle down, whatever, it's going to be rough. Lois didn't like that too much, so she called the captain spoke to his assistant and said, why are we going into the storm? Why don't we put down the anchor right here? And then after the storm is over, what we can do is pick it up and uh, go from there. The captain said, I'll talk. Excuse me. The assistant said, I'll talk to the captain. I'll get back to you. And uh, a few moments later, the assistant called back. And I'm sure that he was very diplomatic, but he said, the captain told me to tell you two things. Number one, uh, I'm in charge and you're not. Just a little technicality there. And then the captain told the assistant this. Now, if you're taking notes today, and if you are, your crown in heaven is going to be so heavy that your head is going to be tilted. Would you write this down? I notice people here in the front row, God bless you, you're taking notes, aren't you? Yes, you're going to be blessed. <laughs> I want you to remember what this captain said, and I want you to remember it for the rest of your life. He said, tell her that this ship was built with this storm in mind. Wow. When I think of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, was raised again, and then taken to heaven, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are trusting a ship that was built with your storm in mind, and you are trusting a Savior, if I might say it again, who is able to take you and will take you all the way to the other side of the lake. The Bible says that he went into heaven ahead of us. He's the forerunner. In those ancient days, as a ship was coming into harbor, a forerunner would jump ahead, swim to shore, and then by means of an ancient winch would bring in the boat so that it would not be ruined. It might be leaky and dashed against the rocks, but the people would be saved. You're trusting a Savior who when he died and rose again, had your storm in mind. Now I told you we're going to take care of our storms today. We're going to give them to God. But before I do, I have to tell you a story. My wife and I fly to Europe occasionally, and we went to Israel, and we flew American Airlines from Chicago to Frankfurt, Germany. Now, you have to use your imagination because today we can't do these kinds of things because of security. But let's suppose after the plane took off from O'Hare, and my wife and I lived close to O'Hare Field, great big huge jets come over our house. One day I was walking from the dining room to the bedroom and a flight attendant told me to sit down. 
So anyway, I want you to visualize that an hour after the plane is in the air, I say to myself, you know, I wonder if those American Airlines pilots are awake. And so I ask a flight attendant, would you check to see if they're awake? And she comes back and says, yeah, they're awake. An hour later, I think, you know, I've known people who have fallen asleep within an hour. And so I say to her, I know that this is a bit bothersome, but would you check to see if the pilots are awake? And she comes back and says they are awake. I'm a little embarrassed to ask her again, but now we're talking about, you know, what time does this plane get to Frankfurt? What is your schedule like as a flight attendant? And then I say, well, you know, now that we're talking, would you go check to see if the pilots are awake? And at that point, she becomes very indignant. She said, let me make a deal with you. I'll pour you a cup of coffee if you promise to step outside and drink it. <laughs> and then she says to me, you're insulting the pilots of American Airlines. And I would be. Brothers and sisters, you and I insult God every day. We give him our burdens, and then we, the next day, well, have you done anything about it? And we keep reminding him, and there's nothing wrong with praying the same prayer over and over again, but there comes a time when we give the matter to God, the storm, and then instead of asking him the same thing, we thank him that it is off of our shoulders and onto his. And the Bible says that the governments of the world will be upon his shoulders, which means He's able to grant us grace and strength in the midst of our storm. But we have to give it to him. Our storm needs to become his storm as we give it to him. So we're going to pray in a moment, but I need to tell you that for some of you, this is very difficult. It's not something that you can just do in two minutes. I'm giving you a pattern that you must use for the rest of your life. And, and to take out time to give your storm to God. Sometimes I have struggled and struggled until I gave my storm to God. And, you know, a woman at Moody Church says, you know, Pastor Lutzer, you told us to stop worrying. If I were to stop worrying, I would have absolutely nothing to think about. Because I worry from when I wake up to when I go to bed. Stopping that is difficult. But we begin by saying, oh God, this storm is yours. I come to you in faith. I can't handle it. We are bearing burdens, my brothers and sisters, that God never intended us to bear. And we give our storm to God. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray briefly, and then we're going to have a time of silent prayer. And if God has talked to you today, you talk to him. And if you've never savingly believed on Christ, the captain of our ship, you trust him as your savior. Trust him as the only one who is a savior who takes you all the way to the other side and deposits you in the presence of almighty God. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. 
If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.